the it factor. The it factor. You know that quality of being that some people just possess? Like some people just have it. And all of us have some picture or vision or idea of what it is. And, and, and we want some of it for ourselves. And, and, and in some way or another, we're all working towards some picture of it. Some of us used to have it. Some of us think we have it. Really, we're just full of it. But we all want it. There's some it out there. Maybe it's a quality of relationship with somebody that's dear to you. Maybe it's retirement. Maybe it's that feeling of having multiple generations of your family all together. Maybe it's that feeling of getting that letter from that school that you've been working for. Maybe it's that feeling of that person who likes your posts. We're all working towards it. And there's all some, we all have some vision of it that we think that in the present moment we're willing to make a sacrifice for it. Because in the end, we know that if we get it, it will have been worth it. More on that in a second. We are in the third week of our series called Momentum, where we are exploring uh, four life-changing directions, four powerful practices, four uh, dynamic disciplines of the spiritual life that put us on a trajectory towards it, a flourishing life, the way that God intended for us to live, a vision of life with God at the center of everything we are and everything that we do and all that we might be and become. We are working towards that. And so the first week we talked about prayer, and then last week we talked about fasting, and, and today we're going to move toward the third practice uh, that Christians of all time everywhere have all engaged in this practice. And something, and, and, and the good news, the exciting news, is that you're actively engaging in it right now. You don't have to do anything differently, at least not yet, because what we're talking about today is worship. Worship is this practice, this discipline, this habit of life, this rhythm of grace that each one of us is invited to participate in, not just in a weekly form or fashion, but in a daily devotional practice. But we engage in worship in a weekly communal context in the life of the church. Uh, lots of people over time have called what we're doing here lots of different things, a gathering, uh, an event, 
My favorite name for what we're doing is a service. It's a service of worship that all of us have some share in. But as we begin, I want us to kind of get on the same page about what worship is and what we're doing. And I want to broaden the definition because if if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, you might say, well, this doesn't necessarily apply to me. Somebody invited me here today. They promised that there was lunch afterwards and and they were right. They're not bait and switching you. Uh, But you might say, yeah, this isn't something that I normally do. I'm doing it right now, begrudgingly perhaps, but here we are. And so worship, I want to say, is anything that you consider to be or that will be worth it. The word worship means to the recognition of the true value of something. And so in, in the context of, of Jesus' people, we say that Jesus is the object of our worship and we recognize the true value of Jesus in our life. But We also all have lots of other things that we think and consider to be worth it. Relationships, work, things that we're willing to make sacrifices for. And this is a really important thing to recognize, that what we worship, hi April, is what we say is worth it. Or it will be worth it once I get there. And this matters because we become what we worship. Whatever vision you're pursuing becomes the Lord that you serve. And we become what we worship either for our ruin or for our redemption. There are really only two options. What you think is worth it in your life will either ruin you or it can repair and restore you. The beauty of the vision that you have in your life, whether it's Jesus or something else, determines the quality and character of your life. And so this really matters, and it begs a profound question. Is what I'm worshiping worth it? Is it actually, in the end, worth my time and my effort and my energy? And what if, what if, what if, friends, what if it's not worth it? What if it's actually not worth it in the end? That vision that you're working so hard for ends up not being worth it. What if you get it? And you find out that you still don't have it. And the the goalposts just keep moving further and further downfield. The uh, profoundly genius writer David Foster Wallace, in a commencement address that he uh, gave a few short years before his untimely passing, uh, captures this, I think, masterfully. And he writes this, "Uh, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism, not believing that there is a God. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. 
But the only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and possessions, things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough, and I would add you will never feel like you are enough. That's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. And we could swap out any number of things, any, any, any tangible, material, created thing, that if we look to that and tap meaning and significance from it, whether it's children, education, career, anything at all that you put in a place of ultimacy in your life, it will eat you alive without any mercy. Happy Sunday. But is there something, is there someone that if you were to put at the center of your life would actually provide you with it, the it that you're looking for, and that it wouldn't actually eat you alive, that it would actually make you feel alive perhaps for the first time? Is there someone that we can actually worship? in a way that doesn't eat us alive. Well, one of the first followers of Jesus learned this the hard way because he was worshiping something that was not just eating him alive but was causing him to take the lives of others. We know him, history knows him as the Apostle Paul. And he uh, had his life transformed by Jesus. He, He ultimately swapped out what was at the center of his life and put Jesus there. And, and as a result, he, his life began to flourish, and not only his life, but the life of communities around him. And he began to establish these communities throughout uh, the first century Mediterranean world. And, and these people, he, he encouraged to, for them to also put Jesus at the center of their lives and at the center of these communities and at the, to find Jesus at the center of all reality. And, and the most amazing thing happened is that everything started to be transformed. Everything started to change. And as a result, actually, you and I are here today because of this type of transformation. And maybe you know a bit of this transformation for yourself. But he writes to a community in Rome, a Jesus community, and it's one of his most magnificent and magisterial letters that he ever wrote that we know as the letter to the Romans. And this is a letter written to a church, a multicultural, multi-generational church that he has actually never been, uh, he's never gathered with them, but he knows the, the sort of leaders of this community. And, and they have written him, and, and he, is, he is writing in response to some of the issues that they are facing. And, and, and in the, there are 16 chapters in this letter, and the first 11 
are all kind of describing and painting this picture of what I've just described. The reality of what the Bible calls brokenness or sin, which is the result of placing something at the center of your life that cannot bear the weight. And how people place ethnic identity as that center. Or they place religiosity at that center. And Paul deconstructs all of that. And now in chapter 12 at the beginning, he begins to rebuild and paint a picture and invite these followers of Jesus into. And so he writes, Therefore, in light of everything I've said in the previous 12 chapters about the transformative beauty and goodness and power of Jesus, in light of all of that, therefore, I urge you, there's a sense of urgency, this appeal, this, this longing, like, come on, I'm, I'm, I'm practically on my knees begging you people, brothers and sisters, not as somebody who's above you, but somebody who is co-equal with you. I urge you, I beg you. And then he says something unbelievable. In view of of God's authority, in view of God's judgment, in view of God's power and supremacy, no, 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 in view of God's mercy, 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 Mercy is the heart, the loving, beating heart of God that says, here is what you deserve, but I'm giving you something that's better than what you deserve. In view of this mercy, which actually goes against the very essence and heart of human history and the human heart throughout all centuries and all time, because what What the human heart has said about God is that ultimately, when we have to kind of do the mental calculus of what's required in terms of the cost of following Jesus, the human heart says, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's too hard. It's too challenging. These people are too frustrating and annoying. I don't get to keep my money in the way that I want to do with it, whatever I want. I don't get to use my body in all the ways that other people around me get to use it. It's not worth it. And ultimately, when, when God takes on flesh and blood and moves into the neighborhood and, and demonstrates with winsome beauty and elegant, elegance and grace what it actually looks like to follow God when we're invited into the very presence of God in flesh and blood and bone, we say, no, 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 no. <laughs> this, you, you got it all wrong. What you're doing, that's not how we do the religious thing. That's not how this all works. That, what you're talking about there, the kingdom of God, grace and mercy and peace and justice and forgiveness, none of that is actually worth it in the life that is real in the real world. None of that actually matters. None of that is actually worth anything. Actually, Jesus, your life isn't worth anything. And so we're going to crucify you on a garbage dump on the outside of town because you are worth less than anyone or anything. God, you are 
not worth it. And from the cross, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And on the cross, we see the merciful heart of God that says, you are worth it. You are worth my life. You are worth everything I am and everything I have. Your life is worth my life. You are worth it. And so, my sisters and brothers, the first thing we need to remember about worship is that it is the weekly reminder that you are worth it to God. You are worth it to God. Each and every week, we need to be reminded at the very essence and center of our being, that you are enough, that you've been given everything that you need to live the life that God has called you to live. And even in in the face of all of the ways throughout the week where you have said, God, it's just not worth it, God says, yes, you are. Let me show you. Let me show you. You're worth it. And so if we become like what we worship, and then in relationship to Jesus, if Jesus is at the center of our worship, then our worship is going to have to be consistent with Jesus. It's going to have to look like the cross. And so that's why Paul continues, and he he says something rather curious and paradoxical. I mean, it gets kind of lost on us, but we get the general gist of it. Uh, He says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, we know, for the most part, that sacrifices tend to not live. And in the first century especially, Jewish Christians would have known because they would have participated in the ritual offering of animal sacrifice, where they would have seen time and time again a priest place an animal on the altar and drain its life force out of it and put it on a fire and its aroma would go up to the heavens and there was no coming back from that. And even uh, the the Gentile Christians, the the non-Jewish Christians, would have seen in the Roman uh, religions and temples that they also would have had sacrifices. And and oftentimes, it wasn't just animals that they would offer as sacrifices. It was much more brutal uh, of an offering than that. But there's no such thing as a living sacrifice, except for Jesus. Uh, Because what we know of of, of the life of Jesus, which is real life, that when we offer our life as a sacrifice, when we die to ourselves, actually new life and new possibilities begin to be formed. And so each and every day we are to offer our lives as a living sacrifice. It's almost like Paul is saying, offer your life on the altar. Everything you do with everything you are, place it on the altar and say, God, I die to what I think I need and know and I give it to you. And from this place, God brings you to new life to walk out into the world with grace and peace and love and forgiveness. 
present your whole bodies as a living sacrifice to who God is and what God's doing because, my sisters and brothers, Paul continues along, this is your true and proper worship. Now, a lot, our, our, our English translations are fantastic and wonderful, and I'm, uh, re, you should read them. They're, they're really good. <laughs> Thank you, Brad, for laughing at that. Uh, but, but true and proper, you know, that sounds just so proper. This is true and proper worship. Other translations will say, this is your spiritual worship. You know, put it in a whole different category. Uh, you know, it's like there's true and then there's spiritual. And you're like, oh, great, that doesn't, that doesn't help at all. Uh, but the, the Greek word that Paul uses here is a, a, a word that where we derive our English word logical from. This is your, to present your, in view of God's mercy, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice is your logical act of worship. It follows consecutively, if A, then B, then C. It makes perfect sense. Because... What, what Paul wants us to see is, is that worship is the logical response to an event, that of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, more than it is an emotional experience at an event. You see, so often when we come to a gathering like this, we're, we're already beginning to evaluate how it made us feel. We're sort of scripting that Yelp review in our minds of, well, how was the singing? Did it make me feel anything? Did I know the words? Did I like the instruments that were used? Or how about the sermon? Did it make me think? Did it challenge me? Did it, did it confirm what I already think to be true? No, Paul is saying worship is our logical response to the Jesus event. And I'm not trying to separate our minds from our hearts and our intellects. What I'm saying is that worship, what we do, this weekly summons that God says, come into my presence and to offer everything you are and all that you have, this is the logical move in response to Jesus who did precisely that for you. And so we are invited to return that in kind. And so worship is not just about singing or sermons. Worship is about surrender and sacrifice. At the core, what we're invited here to do is to surrender and sacrifice our lives. Again, <laughs> happy Sunday. But this gathering is only about singing and sermons as a meal is about the plate or the fork that delivers the food to your body. They're all intended to deliver the experience itself, to point to Jesus. And so we respond to the reality that God has promised in Jesus to meet you in this place and from this place to transform you to live like Jesus 
in the world, to know, to reorient your mind and your life and your values around what is actually worth it. And so that's where Paul continues, renew your minds, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Do not conform, do not pattern your life after the values and patterns of this world who's always looking for what's worth it. No, we already know what's worth it. So how do we align our lives around that? How do we know that what we're actually doing here matters and is worth it? We have to first consider something that I find absolutely remarkable. Uh, Harvard University, ever heard of it? (laughs) Has been conducting a study for the last 84 years, and it's still going, about human, about the good life, what human flourishing and what happiness looks like, what makes a life worth living. And they've done studies of thousands of people from vastly different socioeconomic backgrounds. It's this incredibly compelling study. And, and they've evaluated all of these different factors of, of what makes a, a life worth it. And Perhaps not surprisingly, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, the, the results. What makes life worth living is the quality of your relationships. That's what makes the good life, the quality of your relationships. And these secular psychologists who are, who are doing, and sociologists who are doing this study, uh, say outright, like, actually what we're doing here scientifically is, is what, like, the Jesus community has been saying for the last 2,000 years. (laughs) But one of the things that they found to be true, which is another thing that the Jesus community has been saying for the last 2,000 years, is this. Uh, One of them writes, our brains, the most sophisticated and mysterious system in the known universe, often mislead us in our quest for lasting pleasure and satisfaction, what we think is ultimately worth it. We may be capable of extraordinary feats of intellect and creativity. We may have mapped the human genome and walked on the moon. But when it comes to making decisions about our lives, we humans are often bad at knowing what is good for us. (laughs) I mean, it's January 22nd. How are your New Year's resolutions going already? Right? We know what's good for us. We know this will be ultimately worth it. But then in the end, the, the, the sort of wheels come off because we choose things that are good things. I mean, God, I love Chick-fil-A. <laughs> it's a good thing. But there can be too much of a good thing. You know what I mean? We're notoriously bad at deciding for ourselves what is actually good for us. And so we come into a gathering like this to learn how to discern with the presence of God's people and the power of God's Spirit what is good and true and right in terms of what it means to be a human being. That's why we gather here. And so, friends, why? here's, here's some of the payoff of this. Worship participation will make your life better. And it will make you better at life. Regular participation in a community of faith, it will actually make your life better. It won't make your life easier. 
It won't make your life more comfortable. But it will make your life better. It will make your life worth it. And it will make you better at living life. Living your life, not somebody else's. Living the life that you've been invited to live. Being able to discern with the presence of God and the Spirit of God what good and evil are in your circumstance and situation. How to offer in your bodies in, in response to Jesus offering his body for the sake of this body so that we might reach some bodies in the world with his love. 